welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School Policy Cast, an ongoing conversation about public policy, governance, and global issues. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and joining us today is HKS Professor David King. Following the 2000 presidential election, David directed the Task Force on Election Administration for the National Commission of Election Reform and is very much an expert on U.S. and international elections. David, welcome to the Policy Cast. Thank you, Matt. It's great to be here. So the election is over. The president was reelected. What are your thoughts? Well, I think this this election was about um, keeping Barack Obama in office as opposed to simply replacing him. Yesterday, folks faced a choice between throwing him into the trash bin or putting him into the recycling bin. American voters said he's not so bad right now that we're willing to get rid of him. The economy is doing a little bit better than people anticipated it would be. And this was not a referendum about Mitt Romney. This was a referendum on Barack Obama. So he gets to keep his job for another four years. So uh, this morning, the New York Times had a graphic on their front page that showed that the United States actually had something of a rightward movement across the entire country, despite uh, President Obama's win and some pickups in the Senate. Now, that's very important for people to keep in mind. The Democrats who are out there giving high fives to each other uh, might want to take a little closer look. President Obama did well in places he absolutely had to do well. It was a very careful campaign where they brought out uh, voters in key areas. But the president or the Democratic Party did worse in a vast majority of the counties than the president and the Democratic Party did four years ago. Today, we have at least 30 Republican governors holding office. The governors, uh, Republican governors picked up several states. And that's the highest that any one party has had controlling state uh, governors uh, in at least 12 years. So it's by no means an across-the-board victory for Democrats. Republicans did exceptionally well. They held serve in the House of Representatives. The Republicans who lost in the House were wing nutty or moon bats, you know, people like Alan West, uh, who were laughable within their own party. Um, But the Democrats probably picked up only one or two seats in the House of Representatives. Given the size of the president's victory, at least with the Electoral College, that is not a good showing for the Democrats. Uh, And the losses that the Republicans took in the Senate were self-inflicted wounds. Um, So, for example, in Indiana, of course, uh, um, Murdoch lost. he, he deserved it, but if the, um, if the libertarian vote had gone to Murdoch instead, uh, then we'd be talking about Murdoch's victory. So the Republicans had found themselves quite divided. Um, on balance, a pretty good night for Republicans, but they lost the big prize. So there was a lot of talk leading up to the election about uh, the Electoral College. I feel like this happens every election. People talk about bringing a popular vote, that kind of thing. How much does the uh, result of if the president did well in states that his campaign focused on, but not so well in other states, how much is the Democratic gains, the success attributable to just campaign activity? And if there was a national popular vote, would you see a more widespread 
campaigning? I mean, would that well, if there were a national popular vote, we'd have very different kinds of campaigns. Uh, right now, if you live in California, if you're listening to this from California, maybe you weren't even watching the thing last night. Uh, you didn't see many political commercials. One of my daughters uh, goes to college in Ohio. She couldn't stick her head outside the window without somebody trying to leaflet her. She was covered in bumper stickers from one side or the other. So the campaign is very unevenly run, and as a result, uh, I, I think that democracy is not well served. If you come of age, if you're in college or in high school, you come of age politically in a swing state, you are obviously more likely to vote in that year. The astonishing thing is that you're more likely to vote for the rest of your life. Really? Socializing effects of these elections are tremendous, tremendously important. The campaigns, though, with an electoral college are run with those swing states in mind. The uh, Democrats, President Obama's campaign team, absolutely out-hustled the Republicans in the swing states. That's why they won. Um, but it, we need a better system. Are we going to get one? Positively not. The Electoral College is not going to be amended away, and there's no strong incentives for the states to come up with their own pacts for everyone to look like Maine and uh, and sort of give it up at the congressional level. It's not going to happen. So democracy is not always well served by the Electoral College, but um, it's what we're stuck with. So uh, now the question, I guess, is what's next? Uh, there's been talk of man uh, presidential mandate, whether that exists or not, because the race was close. Uh, Obviously, the country has a lot of questions right now, a lot of them around the deficit and the debt. Uh, do you see the results of this election? Do you see the lame duck Congress, which is about to, uh, you know, come back into session? Is there a chance that they can come together and actually make a, make a stand for a bipartisan uh, solution? Uh, well, first on a mandate, this is, of course, going to be claimed as a mandate. Any winner claims a mandate. Uh, it is good for President Obama that he received over 50 percent of the national popular vote. It's the first time a Democrat has been reelected or elected two times in a row with 50 percent of the vote since FDR. So that sounds like a mandate. Uh, when you balance that against him doing much worse in most of the counties across the country, it doesn't feel quite like a mandate. Politically, Obama has to claim a mandate. Uh, is there going to be cooperation in the House and the Senate? Well, we have a narrow window now during a lame duck session. Lame duck sessions can be exceptionally productive. Um, will that happen this time? Probably not. Uh, I imagine that one could pass something like Simpson-Bowles through the Senate currently, and it would include strong votes from some moderate Republicans who are on the way out. I would certainly expect someone like Senator Richard Lugar from Indiana to be supporting a real, meaningful resolution. But something like Simpson-Bowles simply couldn't get through the House of Representatives. The most plausible scenario is that Congress does what it does fairly well, and that's kick the can down the road. Uh, right now, the fiscal cliff, we run off of it January 1. Um, before the next Congress is sworn in, our current Congress, including those who are no longer going to be there in January, will probably um, give us, a, say, a three- or a four-month extension before everything falls apart.
So is there any hope of this new Congress? There are, isn't much of a change with the uh, House of Representatives. Is there hope that something could happen even with that three or four month window? Well, I think it's, um, it's going to be President Obama's job to really and truly reach out across the aisle. Um, now, uh, lots of Democrats like to say or point to the Republicans and notice that um, you know, they claimed that they wanted to get rid of him after one term. Well, they're stuck with Barack Obama for another four years. Uh, it's time for President Obama to play golf with members of both parties, to have them over on a regular basis, not to preach, not to teach, but to listen. Then there's some hope that a highly divided country might be able to come around. It takes a real leader to sit and listen, and I think that's what we need right now. But it, it's possible. And we, we've seen a lot of, uh, you know, back and forth over the last four years that really hasn't, on balance, been all that productive. You're saying that it is possible. Well, it's possible. Um, I don't know that I would bet a lot of money on it. Um, I'm an optimist, so I certainly hope that things are going to move in the right direction, meaning towards some kind of a compromise that uh, has a positive impact on decreasing our national debt. Uh, that's a terrible burden to pass on to the next generation. We have to figure out how to deal with it and also improve the economy and uh, really get everybody back to work as soon as possible. That is presumably possible, but it's going to be very difficult for the Democrats and Republicans to agree on an out strategy. You run Harvard's program for newly elected members of the U.S. Congress. Now, can you tell me a little bit about that? That's a program where you bring in uh, new Congress uh, men, women. Yeah, that's right. We have we have uh, new members of the House of Representatives, so not mm -hmm. the Senate, but we have new members of the House of Representatives. We, of course, expect to have a strong majority of the members here. They'll be here in December. The program has been up and running since the 1970s. And in this program, we, um, we don't have any partisan leanings. Uh, we don't have a lot that we can teach them about the things that they have been running on, right? They have fairly firmly entrenched beliefs uh, on the issues that they've been talking about for the last year and a half when they've been running. So we, we look with them uh, uh, what the world might look like 20 years from now. Uh, we ask them to imagine, with the help from the best nonpartisan or bipartisan experts, what will the environment look like? What will we look like demographically? What will the world look like in terms of um, population and pollution shifts and so forth? And once there's a sense for where we're headed, then the members think together in a bipartisan or nonpartisan way back towards solutions today. We expect every member of Congress, we tell them, we expect them to be there for 20 years. So we want them to think long term. That's the heart of what we do. Um, when we ask members years later what they remember about being at Harvard for their brief time here, uh, they say it's getting to know members of the other party. Especially now when things are so divided, you end up on Capitol Hill, there will be Republicans who are chastised for riding in an elevator with a Democrat. There will be Democrats who are chastised for going up and down an escalator with a Republican. We don't worry about that here. They get to know each other here, and then they get thrown into the belly of the beast. The Kennedy School, home of the bipartisan elevator. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, so when they come here, what 
are they most curious? What do, what are they expecting to to learn or at least get a sense of when they walk in the doors? Well, most of the new members look like a bird that's flown into a, a window. They're a little stunned. They're exhausted. They're disoriented. Uh, most new members have to figure out how they're going to hire staff, where their families will be located. Uh, and it's not a time when they're going to do a lot of policy learning. So we try and uh, help them with questions about how they can structure their staff and where they might live. We do that by bringing in other members and especially bringing in people from the Congressional Management Foundation in Washington, D.C. And then we uh, try and create an environment where they can hear about the long-term problems and opportunities that they're going to be facing over their long career in the House. So you mentioned before you speak about demographics 20 years in the future. The demographics of the United States are clearly changing, and I think this election has reflected that. How are they going to play into you know the next election and how the uh, the, the the Senate and the Congress and the presidency shake out over the next, well, let's say 20 years. <laughs> well, you know, predictions aren't uh, aren't particularly useful. Um, they're very hard to ever get right. Um, there are trends that are, though, fairly obvious. Which party picks up on those trends and how they're exploited, of course, we don't know. Um, the biggest trend, naturally, everyone's talking about it, they should, is the growth of Hispanics and also the, um, the changing Hispanic makeup in South Florida, which used to be dominated by Cubans. And Florida uh, is now a more diverse mix of Central American, Latin Americans, and uh, those even from Mexico. So that's the biggest demographic challenge right now for the Republican Party. Uh, the second is younger, socially moderate uh, Republicans who um, are very unhappy with the gay marriage stand of the older Republican Party. So there are some age demographics, and certainly there's uh, the Hispanic crest that we are coming up on. And uh, the Democrats right now seem to be better positioned. However, Marco Rubio is in the wings. He presumably would have been a much better choice for, um, for Mitt Romney as vice president. And local uh, Hispanic elected officials are just as likely to be Republican as they are Democrat along the border in the counties uh, that border Mexico. For example, there are 22 counties that border Mexico. Uh, yesterday, 11 of those counties became more conservative based on 2008. 11 of those counties became more liberal based on 2008. And Hispanic voters um, came out in very large numbers, not just for President Obama, but also for local Republican city council members and state legislators. So they're there to be had. Um, and I expect if the Republicans are going to pick up on this demographic switch, it has to be at the very local level. Right before the election, there was uh, something of a, a spat between a MSNBC host Joe Scarborough and uh, New York Times, uh, I, w I guess you would say, polling uh, guru Nate Silver about the difference in what was happening in the election. Nate Silver has uh, has an, a statistical analysis based on polling that he says can at least predict or give a percentage uh, prediction of uh, what this 
outcomes will be for Senate races and the presidential race. Uh, Mr. Scarborough, as a TV commentator and pundit, was very clear that he thought that any kind of prediction would be too soon. Uh, it turns out that uh, Silver's analysis was pretty spot on. I think he hit 50 of 50 states with his predictions. Is there ever going to be a time if we're getting so good with statistical analysis that the kind of horse race punditry will fade into the background? Or is that always going to be a part of our uh, political process? Well, it's, it's really astonishing what Nate Silver has been able to do, and not just in the world, of course, of uh, political forecasting. Uh, he began his career with baseball prospectus and came up with Pakota, which is where I first became a huge fan of his and wrote him fan mail uh, uh, about his ability to predict where baseball players would end up early in their career. He was a professional um, gambler. He, uh, he was a poker player. And then when online gambling became more difficult, he said, uh, I got to figure out how this happened. And he became interested in politics. He's a brilliant young man who presumably will now turn his attention to something else because this is an area that was low-hanging fruit and he plucked it beautifully. I don't know where Nate Silver will be four years from now. Um, I assume somebody else will come along and take his job while Nate Silver goes and figures out some other interesting problem. Um, the polls are notoriously poor. And what Silver and Real Clear Politics uh, and Sam Wang from uh, Princeton have done uh, is they've created a poll of polls of sort. They, they believe, probably correctly, that uh, some of the polls are wildly high on a candidate and other polls are wildly low on a candidate. So they basically average them and they weight their averages based on whether or not they think they're quality polls or how far back they are in history. Uh, Nate Silver included in his estimates not just poll numbers, but also economic data at the state level and at the federal level. So he had a particularly good model. Um, there was a chance that he was going to be wrong. Everything is probabilistic. He said he had a 90% probability, he estimated ahead of the time, that um, Barack Obama would be reelected. So uh, I think we're going to see more of this. It would be wise of the parties to pay closer attention to this kind of modeling. If they do, then it will presumably direct where they're going to be spending their time and resources. I think the fact that Mitt Romney decided out of nowhere to go to Pennsylvania, of all places, was an indication that they knew four or five days ago that the race was basically over. They understood what Nate Silver already knew and what Joe Scarborough was uh, clearly unaware of. Interesting. Well, on that note, thank you so much for being on the policy cast today. Really appreciate your coming on. Absolutely. Thank you, Matt. You've been listening to Policy Cast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. More information can be found at hkspolicycast.org.